Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I want to invite you to find a Bible and to turn to the book of 2 Samuel this morning, chapter 13. 2 Samuel, and we come to chapter 13 this morning. You'll find it on page 264 in those black Bibles, 264, or you'll find it on page 311 if you're using large print, 311. So let's read and hear God's word together. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son also, a son by a different mother. Remember, David has many wives at this point. Amnon, David's son, loved Tamar, his half-sister. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it, kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel." Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. 
but he would not listen to her and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other wrong that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning as we handle your word together, your living word. Show us this world in which we live. Show us ourselves. And above all else, we pray, show us Christ Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the world's true King. We long to see him. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I have two questions for us as we come to the Bible this morning. Question number one, how much is a little girl worth? It's not my own question. Some of you will remember it and recognize it. That question came from the mouth of a woman called Rachel Den Hollander in 2018. And here's the second question. Will God's kingdom ever truly come? Will God's kingdom ever truly come? That second question is my question. I hope it's your question as well this morning. We want to ask it, don't we? Because here this morning, we want to be real. We have not gathered here out of the world in which we live to enter a world of make-believe and pretend where everything is okay. No, just this past week, a man has been jailed for directing child abuse in the Philippines from his living room in the Scottish Highlands. Just this past week, one story from the news Our world watches that story, doesn't it? Stories like it. Our world shakes its head. We are are appalled at what human beings can do to other human beings. But for us, God's people here together this morning, we are not just appalled at that, are we? We're not just outraged. We are waiting, waiting for this to end. Will God's kingdom ever really come? 
Who will rescue us from all of this and rescue us from ourselves? For here we are in 2 Samuel chapter 13. I can't remember where it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, wherever it was in 2 Samuel, I said, I think here we are in one of the bleakest parts of the Bible. But wherever it was, it cannot be darker than this, can it? Friends, this is King David's family. King David's family. Look, this is the man to whom God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Really? With boys like this? Sons like this? We are so grieved, aren't we, this morning, because this is God's house. This is God's people. Chapter 13 is not describing wickedness out there. It's our house in the king's house. And the wickedness in this chapter is hard to top, isn't it? Deceit, incest, rape, and the discarding of a precious woman like a piece of worthless rubbish thrown outside on the tip. What is a little girl worth? Larry Nasser was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics Association. And over the course of decades as a medical professional, Larry Nasser abused at least 265 girls in his care. In January 2018, Rachel Den Hollander, a Christian, was the last of 169 women to give her victim impact statement in court. And as the judge was considering sentencing Larry Nasser, Den Hollander got to her feet and asked for the court's attention as she spoke. She said, I want the court's attention on one question. How much is a little girl worth? And here's what she said in conclusion. Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate the sentence to give Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything. These victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. Thank you. I want to ask us this morning, as we look at this passage together, I want to ask us, where does that kind of worth come from? What that brave woman pleaded for in the courtroom that day, a little girl is worth everything. Where does the worth come from? And who says? Every fiber in our being this morning, of course, agrees with her, don't we? We want to stand and applaud her. We want to shout it from the rooftops. But why? Where does that worldview, that, that belief, that commitment come from? I want us to see together that it comes from here, from this part of our Bibles, this terrible part. It reads, doesn't it, so terribly, and we want to avert our eyes from it. We feel our revulsion rising within us. But friends, our very emotions this morning are a pointer to something so beautiful that is here in the story. And so I want us to see this morning four different perversions in the narrative, that there are four different characters perverting something, four men. 
And then I want us to see one character proclaiming something, one woman, Tamar. And in her proclamation, I want us to see light and hope. Here are the serial perversions. These are not my words, Dale Ralph Davis, his wonderful commentary in 2 Samuel. Here's what he says, four things, four men. Number one, Amnon. He shows us passion without love. Secondly, Jonadab shows us giftedness without godliness. David shows us anger without justice. And Absalom shows us hatred without restraint. Passion without love, giftedness without godliness, anger without justice, hatred without restraint. Look at the darkness. Number one, Amnon, passion without love. It's interesting, isn't it, that straight away in verse 1, you get after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her, loved his half-sister. Love is not, is not in inverted commas here, but it doesn't need to be, does it? It becomes so obvious that this is not love. Here is the fruit of David's many wives. You end up with sons by different women, and into that world of entitled royal children, beautiful women become vulnerable targets. This word virgin in verse 2, it's likely that it just means a woman of marriageable age. She's sexually mature. And Amnon is tortured by her unavailability. It's so often the essence of desire, isn't it? It's the very fact that something is unattainable that plays on the mind and stokes the fires. But there is a perversion here to this desire. Tamar is his half-sister. The books of Le- Leviticus, Deuteronomy, make it very clear incest was specifically forbidden in the law. And yet Amnon wants something that is unattainable, and he wants it because it is unrighteous. Now, friends, we we have to see this running through this story. We're meant, as we read it, to recoil at his desire, aren't we? we? We spring back from it. How pathetic this is, how warped that he, he even has this desire. You notice in the opening verses that he even lets this warped wanting be worn on his face. He wears it every morning, a haggard expression, his sleepless, haggard bedhead. It's not like he's hiding this. It's open. It's out there. And look, perverted desire gives way to perverted deceit with Jonadab. Verse 6, pretend to be ill. There's only one way to make this happen. Something that is wrong, you need to do something else wrong to get what is wrong. And then the deceit gives way to violence. Verse 11, he takes hold of her. Then he ignores her. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. Then it is raping her. He violated her. Do you see the progression? The handbrake moments that he had all the way through that we saw with King David, that he rides roughshod over. You know, the, the, the text could not be more explicit about how violent this is. In verse 13, Verse 14, rather, he violated her and lay with her. The word with is not there in the original. He laid her, is what the text says. And on top of it all, verse 17, when he calls the young man in who served him, put this 
woman out of my presence. The word woman is not there in the original. Put this out of my presence, this thing that I've used and I'm finished with. Get her out of my sight. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. Why does he now hate her so? Why does he now hate her? Ah, the lust that turns to ashes in the mouth of the one who tastes it. That the love that is not really love for another, but only love for self. That's what lust is, isn't it? So that when you have satisfied the lust and are left with only yourself, the hatred you now feel for yourself must have an object like your lust had an object. And he hates her. Tamar is manhandled and dumped outside. She's now an object of personal shame, of communal shame. She's been violated. The, the act of sex that is, is meant to unite two people, it's meant to unite two people in life-giving ecstasy, it, it has been ripped from its highest place of beauty and glory, and it has been dragged through the dust, hasn't it? So that now two people are not united, but they are divided from each other, both of them for different reasons, devastated in the very core of their being. Oh, friends, isn't it true? Don't we need to say this? I, I couldn't remember who it was I heard say this. I think it's Alistair Begg. I think he says this. Young people, young people, keep your story simple. Keep your life story simple. If you love the Lord, find someone else who loves the Lord. Opposite sex, not a family member and marry them for life. One sexual partner for life only. One sexual partner in marriage. Oh, and the sex can go on and on and on. It can delight you and unite you. But sex at the wrong time, in the wrong place, with the wrong person. Friends, that can leave you picking up the pieces for the rest of your life. You know, the book of Proverbs says that sex is like fire. But put fire in the right place in the hearth. It will, it will heat the whole house and keep it warm. But take it out of the hearth and put the fire in your lap and it will scar you and burn the house down. This is the kind of love which is only lust that turns in a moment to hate hatred of self, hatred of others. Number two, not just Amnon, Jonadab. Jonadab has a perversion here in this chapter. Listen to Dale Ralph Davis. This was so good. I need to read this to you in full. Listen to what he says. Jonadab, this is a shock, isn't it? Jonadab is perhaps the most dangerous man in this whole fiasco. Amnon's evil is relatively restricted, despite how terrible it is. Amnon will always be in bed with someone tending his hormones. But Jonadab has the skill to leak evil everywhere. 
He is dangerous because he has skill without scruple. He has wisdom without ethics. He has insight without integrity. Dale Ralph Davis says, Jonadab reminds me of the anecdote about the vicar of Bray. And here's what you need to know about the vicar of Bray. He was Catholic under Henry VIII. He was Protestant under Edward VI. He was Catholic again under Queen Mary. And then he became a Protestant again in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And someone criticized him as bringing shame and scandal on his calling. He replied, I cannot help that if I change my religion. I am sure I keep true to my principle, which is this, to live and die as the vicar of Bray. It does not matter who I serve and how I do it, so long as I keep my position. That is Jonadab. Nothing succeeds like success. Nothing impedes like standards. Jonadab can show you how to raise needed funds for your Christian institution or how to rape a scrumptious female. Whichever you want. Take your pick. Brothers and sisters, Jonadab in this chapter says to us, those of us who have God-given guile and cunning, those of us who have the right kind of canniness, some of you have this, you have the right kind of the, the, the gift of the gab, the knack for the impossible, for making things happen. You, you know how to charm the room. Jonadab says to us, this passage says to us, oh, un- unless you wrap your gifts in godliness, you can do enormous damage to the church. Enormous damage. We do not need your silky skills. We need your selfless sacrifice. We do not, do not need your guile. We need your gentleness. We do not want your craftiness. We need your Christ-likeness. Passion without love. Giftedness without godliness. Look at David. Anger without justice. Anger without justice. If Amnon is the most despicable character and Jonab is the most dangerous, I wonder if David here is the most damaged person. Verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, ah, we think, here's the light, here's the hope. David hears about this. He was very angry. And that's it. But Absalom spoke. Can you you imagine you, David, you're going to deal with this? No, I I know what you did with Bathsheba. Who, Who are you to judge me, Dad? Who are you to tell me what to do? I wonder if David here is forgiven by God, yes, but perhaps he has still to forgive himself. Or forgiven by God, yes, restored, yes, but the consequences of his sin are just lingering, aren't they? They have, they have robbed him of his moral authority. Whatever, whatever has happened, that this is hardly the action of a righteous ruling king, is it? Ah, well, he says in his anger, boys will be boys. Men will be men. I guess every family has its skeletons. Look at the next words, Absalom, hatred without restraint. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. I I think when when Absalom speaks in verse 20, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, hold your peace, my sister, He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. It's possible that that is not as weak as it sounds. He's not saying saying so much, don't take this to heart. Don't break your heart over this, sister. 
No, verse 22, he hated Amnon. Somebody has said, what he's saying to her here is, don't break your heart, sister, because I am going to break his neck. That's what we'll come to next week. See the heading, Absalom murders Amnon. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you want to weep? Don't you want to weep reading this? You, Israel, out of all the nations of the earth, God said to Israel, you will be my treasured possession. You will be my city on a hill, a light to the nations. Second Samuel chapter 7 Thus says the Lord of hosts to David, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. Prince. You should lead them and protect them. What you did with the sheep, David, now do that with my people. And yet here are God's people thrown to the wolves. Oh, is there anyone who can save us? How will God's kingdom come? What is the hope? I want to say to you that the hope is here in this passage on Tamar's lips, verse 12. Did you catch it? Her her brief moment of begging, of longing, that last remaining moment when she is untouched, undamaged. No, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Oh, did you hear the light in those words? Beautiful light from this poor, beautiful woman. Don't you feel for her? Somebody's daughter, David's daughter. He's not even powerful enough to protect her, or he cannot even feel angry enough to administer justice for her. Don't we weep for her? Verse 19, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So where is the light? Where is the hope? Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Friends, how do we know that what happens here in this passage is wrong? How do we know that we should be repulsed by it, that we should find it evil? It is because God says it is evil. It's because God has shone his light in the world and said, this is not done here in Israel, in the church, in in my world. Do you notice what she says? She does not say, this thing is not done anywhere. She does not say to, to Amnon, this thing is not done among the Homo sapiens species. She does not say this thing is not done among the nations, for it was done among the nations. No, she says it is not done among us, for God has spoken to a people. He has made his own people, and he has given his law to them, his word to them. He has told us what is right and wrong. And so today, friend, any revulsion you feel at this and any question you have of wondering why is this in the Bible, I want to suggest to you that the revulsion we have is only because of the Bible. It is only because of what God has said that we have come to think acts like this are evil. Who says incest is wrong? What if it takes your fancy with your half-sister? She is my half-sister. 
after all. And, you know, I only see her twice a year at the festival. It's not like we live together. Man, she's changed since last time I saw her. No, that, listen, the reason it's wrong is because God says it's wrong first, and then science and biology and genetics and everything else that comes along corroborates it. And then we end up with a cultural aversion to it. But the culture is not a given, for cultures come and go, and cultures have different views about what is right and what is wrong, don't they? No, what we need is a sense of what things are not done here and what things are done here, and it all, it all comes from God. It all comes from Him. There is a very real sense, friends, in which the things that you and I take for granted reading this passage, like consent in sexual relations, we think they're normal, but they weren't normal in the ancient world. Consent is a Christian value, a Bible value. I, I, the past week, I've been reading this wonderful book by a man called Glenn Scrivener. It's a book called The Air We Breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. And he takes other values as well, like consent, like enlightenment, like science. And he says, actually, these things are in our world because of the Bible. These things have become the very air that we breathe. They've become part of the way the world works, but we don't notice anymore that they are actually Christian things. Here's what he says, the Christian revolution in the world is the revolution that has given us the very category of sexual abuse. You want to know why the We Too movement works? It's because of the Christian faith. Listen to a man called Kyle, Har Kyle Harper writing about the Roman world in the first century, the complete violent exploitation of women without any claim to civic protection was simply, as a problem in its own right, invisible. Isn't that amazing? In the first century, women had no claim to civic protection. Listen to this, a man called Tom Holland. In the Roman world, sex was nothing if not an exercise of power. Just as captured cities were to the swords of the legions, so the bodies of those used sexually were to the Roman man. To be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior, to be marked as womanish, barbarian, servile. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. See, the very things that we, we breathe each day, the freedom, the protection, the, the idea of consent, it comes from these very words we have in front of us this morning in the Bible. The, the protection of men and women in sexual relationship comes from here. You have heard it said in the beginning, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. And from that world flows a world of good and truth and beauty and protection. So listen, here, here's where we need to land this morning. L listen to what else Rachel Den Hollander said that day in the courtroom. Here she is now, not addressing the judge, not addressing the courtroom, but this time addressing her abuser directly, Larry Nasser. She said this, throughout this process, 
I have clung to a quote by C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was, and I know it was evil and wicked because a straight line exists in the world. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perception, but on God's. And this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimizing it or mitigating it. I can call it evil because I know what goodness is. I can call it evil only because I know what goodness is. Friends, there is in the world a straight line, a beautiful line. There is in the world a measure of goodness and more than a spoken word by God, that measure of beauty and straightness is the personal word spoken by God in Jesus, his son. God has sent into the world the second Adam, the last man, the greater and truer son of great David, the offspring of David's body who is not tainted by David's sin. Isn't, isn't it beautiful? We, we wait after David, don't we? We wait for generations and generations, but then he comes born of Mary, born of Mary so that his humanity is true, but born of God so that his humanity is new. Jesus comes not tainted by any of this. Yes, I'm in David's family, but oh, I am so unlike my father David. No guile, no deceit, no sexual deviancy in any way. Only beauty, only perfection. Oh, we've said it so many times, haven't we, through this series. The Lord Jesus is the only true and perfect king. And he lives his blameless, guiltless, sinless life so that on the cross he can offer that life to God in place of our sinful lives, in place of David's life, my life, your life. I want to say to us today, friends, if you have, if you have wronged others sexually or if you have been wronged by others sexually, do not fear the hatred of an Amnon. Do not fear the anger of a David or an Absalom. No, friends, for, for look at these men here. Their anger is mixed with weakness, isn't it? Mixed with self-interest, mixed with cowardice. No, do not fear them. Fear the anger of a holy God. How can God's kingdom ever truly come in a world like this? It's not... not not just how can it come because we are so bad, but how can it come because He is so good, so, so pure, so perfect? How can He possibly set up home here among us? How can He take those in the dust and set them at His table in His royal house? How can He have His throne where we are? There is only one answer, isn't there? One place. It is the cross of King Jesus where God poured out his righteous, holy anger on his own beloved, beautiful, perfect son for our sexual brokenness.
Just this past week, I read a testimony from a Christian woman, and I want to read it to you. She says this, I was sexually abused from a young age by a family member. This family member was active in Christian ministry. When I told my mother, she didn't believe me, and my father did nothing. And she then describes her life as a teenager, getting into binge drinking, using drugs in my 20s and 30s. Those years were a haze of excessive drug use and high-risk behavior and the shame and pain that I was always trying to drown. Somehow it just always returned. It was overwhelming. And then she says, I found a Christian ministry called Living Waters. The Living Waters told me about the Lord Jesus Christ. My life started to change in the most miraculous of ways through prayer and confession. I started to find freedom from my wounds. I would crawl to the cross in shame but I would leave feeling at peace. I learned that the cross covers all my past, that the cross is always there, and that the Lord Jesus never fails to meet me there. And she speaks about the ongoing difficulty of dealing with her old anger and many other ongoing issues, but this woman has begun to take the leaves from the tree of life, hasn't she? That tree that we meet at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. And she's taking leaves from the tree and covering herself and covering her shame. You see, on the cross, the Lord Jesus bears all our shame and all our humiliation. He takes the violence that we suffer and the violence that we instigate, and he takes it onto himself. And on the cross, a place of massive exchange happens. That's what the cross is about. So here we are together this morning. For those of us who've been humiliated and violated, the cross is a place of beauty and restoration. For those of us who know we've got violence in us, the cross is the only place you can stand and face the reality of your own evil. For those of us who are ambitious and gifted and self-absorbed, the cross has power to transform you so that you might give your power away, give life to other people. To those of us who are paralyzed and passive like broken King David here and have given up because of our own past, oh friends, hear the word of forgiveness of the cross. Christ will make all things new. And because of the Lord Jesus, Christ's kingdom one day will truly completely, perfectly come because he has come, because he is ours. Amen.